I kept it to myself, like this big secret. And I think that I maybe did that just to survive because for those hours of the day, you know, nine to three every day at school, I could be a normal teenager. I could just be like everybody else. I didn't have to have this sick mom. I didn't have to have this horrible hell going on at home. I could just talk about boys and talk about, you know, vodka cruises, whatever the hell else you talk about when you're that age. And I didn't have to talk about it. And so for a very long time, I led this kind of double life where I would, you know, wake up and deal with mom and, you know, the house constantly smelt of urine because she was just having accidents everywhere. And dad was so stressed and he was drinking and my brothers had kind of retreated to their shells. Mm. I was really alone and, and I'd have that. And then I get to go to school and be normal. you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the Michello on the other side. Let's get juicing. We all have an idea of the kind of life an influencer lives. They go to all the cool parties and they wear all the best clothes and they get sent everything for free and somehow manage to get a table at that restaurant that's always too full for your booking. It must be so easy, right? You probably know Tully Smythe as an influencer and former Big Brother housemate. You'd be forgiven for assuming her real life is just as sparkling as her Instagram feed. But as Tully says, behind closed doors, it's a very different story. Just over a year ago, Tully's mother passed away after a torturous 23-year battle with early-onset dementia. Tully describes the entire experience, from diagnosis to her eventual death, as a living nightmare. She gives us a really candid, honest and raw insight into how this insidious disease devastated her family. But she also opens up about what it taught her, how it changed her, why adversity is our biggest teacher and why she's passionate about raising awareness so no other family experiences a similar torment. Tully's story is a testament to the saying that we should never ever judge a book by its cover because we really have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I've broken this chat up into two parts. It was far too powerful and vulnerable to cut anything out. Part two will be released next week. Here's Tully. Tully, thank you so much for being on the Lemonade Podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We just had the longest chat off air. I had to like wrap us up. I was like, we probably should start this podcast now because you and I, you know, when we get together, it's like, you can't shut us up. Mm-mm. We were t- chatting for 24 minutes, just about all oh other things. That probably so would have been good content for the podcast. Let's be honest, but maybe, maybe not safe to go out. Yeah. There. You would have, you would have had some secret top, top uh, exclusive content. The Daily Mail would have loved that chat. Loved we'll just keep it. What if I just secretly recorded it and put it out and just didn't tell you? Then you'd be really, you know really what? 
I don't even care anymore, honestly. <laughs> like I'm so over caring at this point. 2020 has been an absolute, you know, bastard of a year and we're obviously still on stage four here in Melbourne and I just mm. stopped caring about most things. Yeah, that's it. We're not even face-to-face right now. We're virtual and we live like 20 minutes away from one another mm-hmm. because, oh, we can't see one another. But you were telling me some really hilarious stories about, which I resonate with as another a fellow single gal, dating right now, which is so much fun. It's just the best time today. I mean, Mm. when your options are a masked walk or, you know, a really intimate dinner at your house for two, like with your housemates sitting by, it's just... It's just the best time to be doing it. And then it. they have to leave by 7.30. That was, that's the good yeah, part. Yeah, so that's what well. we're talking about. So the best part about dating at the moment, guys, if you're unaware, if you don't live in Melbourne, is that they come over at about 5.30, which I don't know about you, but is too early to start a date. <laughs> Way too early. So true. And then it gets to your housemates there. So either they're, they've joined you for the date or they're trapped in their bedroom like a 16-year-old kid hiding from their parents. And then at about 7.30, oh, sorry, 8.30 now because we've got the extended uh, hour of curfew. We're so lucky. about 8. I was so, we just, oh my God, thank you so much, Dan Andrews. Um, and then at about 8.30, you have to decide as a team, which is just so awkward. You have to have the chat where it's like, so are you going to stay or are you going to get an Uber and go home? And like, I don't know about you, Ben, but like, I don't really want to have to think about when I'm going to sleep with the guy, you know, at 8.30 on the first date. It's too much. It's just like the universe. I, I remember kind of this year being like, I think 2020 I'm going to find someone. I think I feel like I can just feel it. This mm-hmm. is my time. And um, then COVID and everything hit. And I feel like the universe was like, oh, that's so cute that you thought that. Um, good luck. No. Um, <laughs> wear a mask. You know, you only see them for an hour and um, report back. Let us know how you go. So This was supposed to be my year to go traveling. So I haven't done, I haven't done a European summer and I got a little bit of money um, when my mum passed away. And I thought, you know what, mum would be really happy if I spent this inheritance on traveling. Mm. And so obviously I've done none of that this year. So it's just been a real... Oh, that sucks. Mm, it does suck, especially because I've actually gone through the money anyway, just from living off it because I've barely been working. So. I'm also picturing the beautiful pics that you would have put up like on the Amalfi mm-hmm. Coast and stuff. So that's a real shame too. <laughs> a shame. So how, our, our, dear friend, our dear friend Georgia obviously was supposed to get married over there, mm, over in Europe. So I, it's, always, it's always someone that's like worse off than you. you know? And it's There's so true. Someone, yeah, you think about, you feel sorry for yourself. And then I think about all my girlfriends who have had to postpone their weddings or, you know, I had a friend lose their dad and couldn't be there for Gosh. the funeral. And you just think, you know what, I'll just shut the fuck up, hey? It's, yeah. But, you know, it doesn't minimize as well how tough it can be, especially being a single right now. It can be really lonely and isolating mm-hmm. as well. How, how else have you been, you know, have you been, oh my God, it's like lockdown number five now. Are you well and truly over goddamn banana bread and I like so that? Am. Yeah, I'm lucky that I've got a I've got a housemate and she's great. Funny story though, I only moved in like end of January and I found my beautiful housemate Peter on Flatmate Finders. So you have to remember we first went into lockdown in March. So I basically was locked in a house with a stranger. <laughs> my January, February was obviously, you know, summer's really busy here in Melbourne. I had lots of events. I was in Bali for work. I was in Sydney for Christmas and stuff and New Year's. So I actually wasn't home a lot um, January, February. And then suddenly March we're told we're trapped together. <laughs> Be friends. At first I was like, yeah, at first I was like, fuck, no, like can't do this. What? No. But we've actually become really, really close friends. We're, That's good. We're, 
Yeah, I've been really lucky to have someone to live with. I can't imagine. Um, yes. Obviously, you live alone. I mean, you've got Ollie, but um, still, it's been interesting. Yeah, it's hard. Just right? being alone, someone I can, I can't. <clears throat> excuse me, I can't speak. I can't imagine actually just living solo through this would be. Yeah. Poor. No, I can't. I mean, these new bubble things are interesting in themselves. There are so many weird. Have you looked into it? No. You know what? I've kind of given up. Online. There are so many weird rules. <laughs> so like, <laughs> give it up on myself. I'm giving give it up, it up on life. <laughs> Whatever. I can't bam, or have you just come to me fresh face? <laughs> yes, I've given up on it all. I've given up on finding love this year. It's all over. <laughs> Is that why you're not wearing a bra? Or I can see you're not. No, I actually, I'm kidding. I am. No, I actually am. Um, I considered not wearing a bra for this chat. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just I'm not going to feel sharp enough if I had no bra on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the one thing that makes me feel slightly professional in this chat. <laughs> I'm wearing Ugg boots and it makes you feel better. Um, yeah, no, with the bubble thing. So basically Peter is seeing someone. So she's allowed to go visit him as part of her intimate partner deal. But because I don't live alone, I don't get to go see anyone, like that a friend, sucks. because I have mm. a housemate. And then the other rule is, so for you, for instance, you could make – a social bubble with someone who also with a share house, but that no one can be home when, because you, because you live by yourself, yeah. you can have a social bubble with anyone you want. But if you make oh, one I'm so with lucky. <laughs> oh, thank you. But if you make it with someone that lives in a share house, nobody else that lives there can be home when you visit your chosen friend. Oh God. It's just, it's so like, almost too much. Where are they much. going? I where just, are they going? I just feel, yeah, it's so true. I just where feel are, like... <laughs> It almost gets too complex and you can almost feel in the air this feeling of non-compliance almost creeping in. Oh, I, you know, is. I've heard oh that God. many stories. I think, I think there's only so much that the collective can take before everyone just starts bending rules. And yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I, yeah. My friends, are feel, I'm feeling that way a little bit. Like, yeah, I, I've noticed that. So probably that sort of last announcement we had, I think that suddenly people, and most of my friends, the majority have been so good with the rules, so strict. Mm. But that last announcement where he said, you know, not only do we have two more weeks of stage four, but we're probably not going to get out till October. Suddenly, you know, end of October, I might say in 26 after my birthday, after my birthday, more importantly, um, I had a few friends message and be like, Hey, so like, it'd be really random if you were like walking past on your one hour walk and like got lost in our front yard. That would be weird. Wouldn't it? And I'm like, what are you suggesting? Yeah, I feel like that's the yeah, problem. Right. They're going to have to. I know there's a lot of pressure. But anyway, I feel like everyone out of Melbourne is like, oh, everyone out of Melbourne listening to this will be like, oh, God, okay. I don't give a poor fuck. Melbourne. Nor do yeah, I understand. My life is normal. Like, oh, poor Melbourne. It was actually really sad. I was speaking to a friend of mine this morning who lives in uh, in Sydney, out of Sydney, actually, and she was like, I just don't want to go to Melbourne for a long time. And I think, and I didn't oh, think no. that. I was like, hey, Melbourne has a real PR problem now. Who's going to oh my God. a virus-ridden city? Maybe not anymore, but it will still, it'll take a while to shake that, I think. And I, I found that really I sad. I didn't even think about that. Mm. Yeah, that is really sad. I feel like, I mean, I've definitely seen the memes go around where it's like, oh, you reckon that Melbourne will get most livable city again? Ha ha. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, don't, we yes. work so hard, you know. And I, it's funny, I've seen a few friends, um, I'm assuming, I'm hoping, got away across the border before it was illegal, but. I've seen a few Melbourne friends up in Sydney and up in Byron. And I'm like, I kind of feel this feeling of like, fuck you. Like you've abandoned us. Like I'm obviously, I'm from from Sydney. So I could technically, I think, I haven't looked into it, but I think I could probably find a way to get up there. I've got my dad there. He's obviously quite old at the moment. 
at the moment. He's just old in general. Um, <laughs> and I think if I needed to, I could probably get over the border. But now, you know, this far into it, I would feel like I'm abandoning my fellow Melbournians. I'm yeah. Like, I'm kind of like, well, I kind of feel like we're going through this collective forced growth. And I feel like if you escaped from that good on you, but you've not gone through it with us. Like you're not going to have the learnings that we're all having. We're all, we're all coming out of this as like better, different elite, elite human beings. You're not. Sorry. You're out. You're out of the click. Sorry. But yeah, no, I do actually know. You what you've with us. <laughs> yes, that's what it feels like now. You're, only, you're from Melbourne, but you're not really one of us. I mean, you did go to Sydney for three months in 2020, didn't you? So yeah. it doesn't really count, does it? Wait, good on you. Now <laughs> we should get into the interview actually. Sorry. And the questions I have, no, I loved it. I love chatting with you. Now Tully, with all my interviews, I started the same way. And that is wanting know what my guest childhood was like. And I'm really interested in what your childhood was like before your mum became unwell. What do you remember? Mm-hmm. I had the best childhood. I, I, it's funny. I looking back, I'm like, fuck those, those sweet few years were so good before everything, you know, she hit the fan. Um, my parents worked really hard. Both my parents worked full time and we grew up with nannies, uh, which, I mean, I definitely had moments where I was sad about that. You know, when mom had to go to work early or my dad came back from work late or I think like stuff like sports carnivals, I was always the most envious because there was stuff like daddy daughter races and everyone had their dads there. And I had my like female nanny running with me. I'm like, this isn't the same. But they worked really, really hard so that we could have the best of everything. They really wanted us to go to all the best schools and really have everything we could ever have wanted. We were absolutely spoiled brats. Like, you know, I remember getting a bit older and my parent, my dad being like, oh, you know, you're such a sport brat. And I'd be like, whose fault's that? Because, <laughs> we, you know, you know, like when you start to learn, like, hang on a minute, this is all you're doing. Um, we, yeah, we had the best childhood. I have two younger brothers. Uh, Scott is 14 months younger than me and Tom is five years younger than me. And we lived in this beautiful heritage listed house in Gladesville in New South Wales. And it was stunning. It had like a wraparound veranda and huge lawn for us to play at. We had a pool, we had a cubby house. It was truly just like, you know, magical. And I think whilst we had the best nannies, I loved my nannies. So I didn't feel super like, you know, woe is me. And then I think my parents probably felt a healthy serve of parent guilt. And so our weekends were like, phenomenal because mm. they were like, okay, shit, we haven't been with our, parents, with our kids all week. You know, we'd go to um, Seagull World, which was like, if you're listening and you're from that area, it was like this sort of fun park thing. Mm. We'd go to Darling Harbour. We'd do, you know, we'd always do these activities because I guess our parents were grateful for those two days of the weekend where they could spend time with us. We'd have like family picnics on our front lawn where mum would make like roast chicken, lettuce and mayo, like sandwiches. Yeah. yeah, it was really honestly an idyllic childhood. We had many, many friends. Um, my parents loved having um, people over. So if we didn't have our friends over, we'd have big sort of long lunches, my parents' friends. And mum was an amazing entertainer. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she worked these crazy hours, nine to five, and then through these, you know, dinner parties and, and lunch events. Um, I don't know how she managed to pull it all off really, but I literally cannot fault it. We just had the best childhood. Mm, that sounds beautiful. What do you remember about your relationship with your mum during those years as well? Um, mum was, <laughs> mum was good cop and dad was bad cop, which is so funny now because my dad is such a softy. but mum, I think we definitely we had that bond of me being the only girl and having two brothers and then mum being mum, 
we butt heads, you know, I think that especially as I got older, you know, two females in a house, you would know, like it gets to a point where you start sort of arguing or butting heads a lot, but I definitely always felt like she was in my corner. I remember, you know, I shared a bedroom with my brother, Scott, for way too long, like (laughs) too long, like just too long. But this is the thing, right? We had this amazing loft um, up this spiral staircase uh, that my parents converted into a bedroom because for ages I was like, I hate sharing a bedroom. I don't want to share a bedroom anymore. Like this sucks. Like I need my own space. It's funny. And then they converted it into this beautiful, like, you know, teenage girl's dream bedroom. And I weirdly didn't move up there for a while. Like it was like I actually liked being with my brother and I I think it was a bit of a scary move and I was a bit scared to leave him. So I complained about it for a while and then, you know, they 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 converted it and then I still took a while to go up there. <laughs> but I remember when I finally made the move, mom took me on this massive shopping spree to like kit out my bedroom. I would have been like, oh, I don't know, 13, 14 maybe. Oh, maybe even younger, maybe even 12. I was in year six. How old are you when you're six? 12. Yeah. Around 12, yeah. 11, 12. 12. Yeah. So she took me on this massive shopping spree. I'm talking, I didn't want to, I remember her actually saying, let's not tell dad what we spent today <laughs> and just kitted it out. Like, you know, all the coolest, um, I had this weird, I was obsessed with, um, tree of life. You know, that hippie. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> Did you go through a stage where you'd shop there? I don't know what I was I don't remember going there frequently. I want to agree with you, but I don't remember always going. Okay, so it's like this like alternative shop that I was obsessed with. It really surprises me, to be honest, just knowing. Yeah, really? Yeah, I just wouldn't (laughs) picture you always frequenting Tree of Life. (laughs) I don't know. I think it was a thing. Anyway, she bought me this beautiful like um, fuchsia pink velvet kind of Indian inspired throw to go like over my bed. I'll never forget it. And just bought me some cool clothes and candles and like a, you know, a really high tech CD player to play on my CDs. And I just remember, yeah, it being like our little secret that she'd just spent all this money and we like, Mm. you know, did my room all up and I felt really special and really like a big girl. I was a big girl all of a sudden with my own bed. I had a double bed. It was very exciting. Um, But that's kind of like, you know, it's sad because she did get sick so early. You know, those are kind of like the only real memories I've got of her. I don't have, I don't get to have any adult memories or Mm. um, even any sort of late teenage memories. So that's kind of stuff that I remember about. Did you always, you said, you know, she was an incredible entertainer and I've heard you say, you know, she was always immaculate as well. Did you always, we always think that our mums when we're little, like they're so glamorous and they wear makeup and they get their hair done. Did you remember like looking up to her and just thinking she was so beautiful and so elegant? Absolutely. She, from a very, very young age, she had this hairdresser that she'd gone to for probably her whole life um, in Double Bay. And she'd take us there to get our haircuts too, but she'd go there a lot. She had weekly blow waves, um, a new... I knew how much she was into her appearance because the couple of times I was a hypochondriac as a kid, actually, you know what? I'm still a hypochondriac. I was, I'm a hypochondriac, but as a kid, I was often sick, too sick to go to school. And obviously as we got a bit older, we didn't have the nannies anymore. So I would go either with my dad or my mom to the office. And it was funny because like I'd go to the office and obviously you have to drag the kid around and she'd have her nail appointment. She'd have her hair appointment. And that's kind of when I first realized how much she took care of herself, her physical self. And she was always blowing money on makeup and clothes. Like she just, you look at photos of her now and she was just 
She's, she's so immaculate. glam. Yeah, she's yeah, so glam. I love all those time. photos you share. <laughs> yeah. And I remember and I remember she had a few dresses. Like she'd have these like 80s, 90s power suits she'd wear to work, which I, I appreciate now so much. I look back and I'm like, fuck yeah, like that mm. is boss. But at the time, I just I really loved when she wore her really sort of like flowery, really feminine, flowy dresses. She had this one dress that was kind of multicolored flowers that she'd wear during summer and I loved when she'd put it on like she put it on just to make me happy because it was just I thought it was just so pretty Mm. I actually found that dress in her closet when she went into a care home and pulled it out and I was like yeah I I thought maybe in my head that I'd want to keep it or that I'd wear it and I pulled it out and I was like what the fuck is this This is hideous like the print's nice I guess but like was that really the dress that I thought she looked so good in Jesus no but she was yeah she was a beautiful beautiful woman she was actually a beauty queen in her high school and university days. Um, so yeah, she was always stunning. Immaculate. Absolutely. And then when you were in your early teens, you were quite young. You all started noticing just some changes within her, but yeah. I guess you will, you just think at the time, oh, maybe she's just not had enough sleep, but I don't know what, what's going through your head when you notice these changes and what did you notice? Yeah. So I think again, you know, as I sort of touched on, they were both workaholics. They worked really, really hard. Um, Mom had always been a career woman. It's something that I really respect about her now that I'm older. Um, she'd always put, not put a career first. I, w- I don't want to say that. They were great parents, but she was very career driven and constantly stressed and, and, and working late. And, and, you know, she'd take phone calls and it'd always be about work and, you know, we'd go on holidays, family holidays. And I would never forget that we'd get to this amazing, you know, the wit Sundays or we'd go somewhere and we'd get into the hotel where we'd all run to pick the best bedrooms. And mum would constantly be looking for the plug to plug her mm. laptop in. Like from the minute we got there, she could never switch off. And so when, you know, these sort of first signs of early onset dementia started showing, we just put it down to stress or work, you know, who hasn't forgotten where they've parked their car? I mean, who hasn't done that before, you know? And it was stuff like that. It was, you know, forgetting where she parked her car at Westfield or coming home from the supermarket and buying milk, even though we had two full ones in the fridge, um, then it kind of became more serious and more concerning uh, stuff like she would tell you a story again, you know, she'd come into your bedroom and tell you a story and then an hour later come and tell you the exact same mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And I, I found out later on as well that within her business, she was doing that with emails. She would send an email and then a day later send the same email, not realizing she'd sent that email already. We didn't know that at the time, this kind of stuff came out as we were all piecing it together. I mean, my dad said that, that's kind of stuff that I was noticing at sort of 14, 15, but we, my dad said that, you know, in hindsight and hindsight is 2020, you know, once you know what the problem is, you can think back and everything makes sense. But um, my dad said, as an example, we, every Christmas, rather than having the normal advent calendar with the chocolate, we'd have these little, it's like a little pouch for every day leading up to Christmas. And mum was amazing. And she'd write these clues. It was actually the best idea. We thought we were like, rather than having a tiny chocolate every morning, we had, we had, we got a toy every day. It's so cool. Yeah. When I say we were spoiled, we were fucking spoiled. (laughs) So rather than having this tiny little chocolate to eat, we got a toy um, every day leading up to Christmas. But mum would write these really intricate clues and make this sort of treasure hunt around the house her brain was phenomenal. Um, it'd be like, there'd be rhyming, you know, you go to one spot, you figure it out, you go to the next spot. It was like three or four clues per day for us. It was so much fun. 
Uh, and then one year she was, the clues weren't making sense and she, she was forgetting where she'd put things. Um, you know, I'd read the clue and I'd go to where it said, and there wasn't a next clue there. And she was obviously getting quite confused with making this treasure hunt happen. I didn't notice that at the time, but that's one of the things that dad remembers and reflects on and thinks, you know what, back then, even she Mm. was obviously showing signs of it. Um, and then it kind of, yeah, as I said, got more concerning. She would, um, watch a trailer for a movie that was yet to be released and talk about how much she loved the movie. Mm. And I'd be like, what do you, what do you mean? It's not out yet. And it's hard, you know, I was only, I was so young and, and it was frustrating, you know, watching this happen. And I would often get into arguments with her or try and shake some sense into her, which was, there's just no point. But I'd, I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, it's not even out yet. Like, mm. you haven't seen that movie, mum. And she'd be like, yes. And that's the other thing with dementia. They get quite defensive. Mm. And she'd be like, yes, I have. What do you mean? You know, I loved it. My favourite movie. And I'm like, you haven't. It's not even, it's physically impossible if you'd have seen that movie. And then sadder things like, I remember once she said to me, oh, you know, it'd be really lovely if one day we could make it to New Zealand and you could meet your aunt. Meanwhile, I'd spent every Christmas in New Zealand with my aunt and my grandparents for my entire childhood. And I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, I know Auntie Sue, like she's my aunt. Like what? Um, And there were more like more damaging things happening as well. Like she... She started, you know, she for some reason got got an idea in her head that my dad was cheating on her, which just it was just physically impossible. Uh, he, my dad is a saint, and he spent a lot of his time caring for her. I don't know when he would have fit that in, the affair, but she was convinced, and she'd call her parents in New Zealand and tell them all about this alleged affair. And then my poor dad had to call them back and sort of explain what was going on. And they went around so they couldn't see how ill she was or how far, you know, along she was. Um, she'd go into my little brother's room who at the time was like nine or 10 and say some pretty horrific stuff about, you know, um, I'm going to take, you know, I'm packing you guys up and I'm going to, we're going to move to New Zealand. I'm taking you kids to New Zealand. And my poor brother was like, I mean, how, Mm. As a 15-year-old, as a I wasn't understanding or grasping the severity of the situation. So how the f- fuck was a nine-year-old supposed to understand what the hell was going on? So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a pretty wild time. She also, they regress. So mm. if you think about Ollie, mm. you know, and as Ollie gets older, he learns, you know, he learns not to drink that because it's hot. You don't drink that, you wait till it cools down you know, suddenly we were having to babysit her when we gave her a cup of tea because she'd just go to scull it. Yeah. Or um, she forgot how to cut up her food. So we had to cut it up for her. And it's just, mm. it was, it was crazy. But yeah, those initial sort of signs, you could very easily pass off as stress or, um, I mean, yeah, it's just such And a she was thing. young too. So you wouldn't, totally. wouldn't even be something that crosses your mind, you know. No. I, she was, 51 when she was diagnosed and you were 14, Mm -hmm. which is, I think back to me at 14, you're still so young. You're such a, you know, really is such a baby. What do you remember from that day? When we found she was diagnosed? Yeah. So it's really interesting. So they actually initially, and again, my version of events is patchy because my dad, bless his consocks, really tried to protect us from the severity of the situation. So at the time we were told different things than what I know now. So my memory is a kind of like a mesh version of my reality versus what my dad wanted us to have as a reality. Um, so they actually, to my knowledge, 
initially checked for plaque on the brain, which is what Alzheimer's dementia is. It's when plaque, you know, grows on the brain and kind of eats at it. If you imagine, I always use this analogy, if you imagine a sponge, like an old school sponge, one of those sort of jelly bean shaped ones, um, if you were to slowly drizzle acid over that, it would erode the sponge slowly. And that's kind of what um, the plaque does to the brain. So they initially checked for that um, very early on and they didn't find any signs of it which is why we went on to check for stuff like sleep apnea, brain tumors, uh, menopause even. And it wasn't until, and also trying to drag, you know, a very headstrong woman who was refusing to admit that there's something wrong to specialist appointments was a nightmare. Like my poor dad also, of course, because at the, you know, at the time when you're able to speak and stuff, you know, she could say to my dad, I don't want you coming into this appointment, Mm. which was all well and good, but that meant that the information wasn't being passed down correctly. Mum wasn't telling the truth. My dad was having to get secondhand information. You know, it was an absolute nightmare to diagnose. Um, but I remember when we finally got the, prog- the prognosis that she did have plaque on her brain uh, and that it was, you know, dementia. By that point, after, you know, starting off at that point, being told no, going through all the other tests, which probably took a couple of years, mum was pretty loopy. Um, she was yeah, she was, she was still talking. She was, you know, she still knew who I was, but she wasn't all there in the head. She was definitely not herself. And there was a moment in time where dad questioned whether we should tell her at all, Mm. which I had a very big problem with. Um, I couldn't believe he would even consider that. I thought that was really unethical, unfair, immoral. Um, I understand you know, again, hindsight, I understand where he's coming from. He was already dealing with so much. Mum was already so um, distressed. Mm. By this point, you know, it was blind Freddie could see that something was very seriously wrong with mum. She was not herself. She had, she'd had to obviously resign from her job, give up her business. Um, But yeah, dad thought kind of thought, well, there's no cure. So what's the point? It's just going to upset her. And I, even as a teenager, was like, absolutely not. Is that an option? I refuse. I'm not going along with that. I'm not playing that game. I'm not even allowing that to be an option. We have to tell her. What was Um, her reaction? She cried a lot. Um, Yeah, it was was a pretty awful day. Um, She cried a lot. Um, I think that most of those conversations that happened would have been between mum and dad. Again, they tried to keep us out of it as much as possible, but I just remember hearing her crying from my bedroom. Um, unfortunately, the house we lived at, at the time, <clears throat> it was my parents' bedroom and then my bedroom and there was this little sort of balcony area, courtyard area between our two bedrooms. Um, what that meant was that they had a window and I had a window. So I unfortunately got uh, a bit of a front seat um, to a lot of stuff that happened in mum's bedroom. Um, I'm not even sure if they were aware how, how much sound traveled straight into my bedroom, but you know, early in the early days, it was a lot of crying. And then as she sort of would have psychotic episodes, middle of the night, 3am in the morning, 4 in the morning, I would just wake up to them. It's kind of like the soundtrack to my teenage years, really. Um, but yeah, I think that 
you know, in terms of her memory and, and how she dealt with it, there were, there were times that definitely stick out in terms of being harder than others. For instance, um, not too long after her diagnosis, her own mother passed away mm. in, in New Zealand. Her dad had already um, passed away and her mum passed away and we tossed and turned, you know, about going over. Again, I pushed, I wanted, I thought we should, I wanted to going over to New Zealand, but dad just thought it was just too hard at this point. You know, I think he was probably barely hanging on mm. as basically a single father to three teenagers and a carer, full-time carer to mum. So we didn't end up going, which I felt really sad for her about. You know, I know she prob- she definitely wasn't with it enough to know, but I just thought it was really sad that she couldn't be at her own mum's funeral. Um, but we had a lot of beautiful people send us flowers, which is what happens when someone dies. And irises were my mum's favourite flower, were my mum's favourite flower. And she was constantly having to be reminded why we had so many flowers in the house. Mm. I should say, oh, you know, what's going on here? Why do, why, why do we have, why are there all these nice flowers everywhere? And we'd have to tell her over and over again why. And she'd have the reaction for the first time over and over again, um, which is like some kind of fucked up scene out of 50, 51st Dates, you know, that movie with Drew Barrymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just having anyway. to... You never want to tell you don't having to tell someone that someone has died is like the worst thing in the world, and having to do that over and over again, and deal with their reaction as if it's the first time they're hearing it. I mean, that was just—it just sounds <laughs> like this living nightmare Hell. that just had no ending. Like it was just ongoing. And I know you've said that your father was full time caring for it this time as well. Meanwhile, you're fourteen, fifteen, at school learning to be an adult, learning to who you are in this world. How did you juggle all of that going on at once? You know what? For a long, long, long time, I didn't even tell my friends what was going on at home. I think that there was this feeling of embarrassment. Um, I was ashamed. I didn't want my friends to come over and play because my mum by this point was so far gone that she was doing all kinds of weird shit. I mean, there was a point where she was double incontinent. Mm. I, you know, there were many times where I'd come out of my bedroom of a morning and find my mum holding her own feces in her hands. Like that is just not something that you want any child to have to deal with. There was no fucking way I was having friends come over and have that maybe happen. Um, and at the same time, I also didn't, I, you know, I was so protective of her. And so um, I didn't want my friends to see her like that because that wasn't my mum. That was the disease. That wasn't who my mum was. As we said before, my mum was this amazing, you know, well put together, stylish, you know, phenomenal woman. And there was no way in hell I was having my friends see her like that and then remember her like that. Mm. So for a long, long, long time, I didn't tell anyone about it. I didn't I didn't confide in my friends. I didn't rely on them. I had, I had no one. I kept it to myself like this big secret. And I think that I maybe did that just to survive because for those hours of the day, you know, nine to three every day at school, I could be a normal teenager. I could just be like everybody else. I didn't have to have this sick mom. I didn't have to have this horrible hell going on at home. I could just talk about boys and talk about, you know, vodka cruises, whatever the hell else you talk about when you're that age. And I didn't have to talk about it. And so for a very long time, I led this kind of double life where I would, you know, wake up and deal with mom and, you know, 
the house constantly smelt of urine because she was just having accidents everywhere. And dad was so stressed and he was drinking and my brothers had kind of retreated to their shells. Mm. I was really alone and, and I'd have that. And then I get to go to school and be normal. Mm. Not talk about it. And it, it's even to the point now where, you know, it's only when I've gotten older and kind of spoken and I only, to be honest, I've only really been this open about it since she's passed away. Um, I obviously became more open with it when I went on Big Brother because I knew there'd be spotlight on us and I'd be on television. But, you know, I've had high school friends from that time in my life reach out and say, I'm so sorry. They're like, I had no idea what you were going through. And I'm so sorry that I wasn't there for you. And I have to be like, you know, we were kids. Like, you want to know. And even if I had it in me, to explain to you how the fuck does a 16 year old deal with, they don't know what to do or say. I've often said that I kind of, you know, there were many times where I wish she had cancer. Yeah. Because two reasons. One there, you know, there is hope with cancer. People survive cancer. There is no hope with dementia. You get dementia and that's it. You're done. Um, But also so many of my friends had dealt with cancer, whether, you know, it was their mom or their aunt or their grandma and I feel like had she had cancer, I would have felt more understood. I wouldn't have felt so alone. But as it stood, I was just, I felt like I was the only person in the world. Yeah, because you have that. talked about that, the fact that dementia doesn't have any sexy celebrity ambassadors, as you say, and there's no national day of recognition. And it's kind of seen as this old person disease that happens to our grandparents when they're in the twilight years of their life anyway, which doesn't make it any better. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. that's where it's kind of we relegated in our minds. How... You know, there wasn't, there isn't even much knowledge about why we get it or how, you know, how quickly it comes on or why people get it younger. How much harder did it make it during that time when you were trying to make sense of what was going on, but you didn't even really know what this illness was? Do you know what? I purposely kept my head in the sand about the disease for a long, long time. I... I've always been an anxious kid. I've had generalized anxiety my whole life. You know, I know that's something that you and I have in common. Um, But, and I I think I kind of knew, I didn't, ignorance can be bliss. And I didn't want to know too much about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I had a name, you know, like many, many people, my um, paternal grandfather had dementia as well, but that was like crazy old man running outside naked dementia, which is what people, I think most people associate it with. So for a very long time, I purposely didn't look into it. I was scared. I was terrified. I didn't know. I think actually when she first got diagnosed, I did a quick Google and I found out that there was about eight years generally life expectancy from diagnosis. So I did some math and I thought, okay, cool. We've got eight years. That's a huge thing. Can I just stop that? That's a huge thing for someone in their teens to find that. I just wanted to know, I think I kind of wanted to know how long we had really. I mean, jokes on us. It ended up being like 23 years long. Um, But then after that, I left it. And I remember the day that I made a decision to look into it more. I was at university at Charleston University studying journalism and I was living on campus in a dorm and I was going through a whole lot of stuff. I kind of just realized that I was maybe interested in, in a girl. You know, I had, I met my first girlfriend at the time. There was a lot going on in this brain. I was 18 years old. Um, you know, living out of home. Freedom. Yeah. And you're probably away from that whole environment, you know, for the first time. Yeah, I was. And I thought, I don't know what instigated it, but I just started researching and I kind of went into this, like, if you imagine like a movie montage 
of me in my dorm room, like Googling printing. I was printing like all these sheets of, of, of facts and stats. And, um, and I remember it got to this point where I was on the floor of my dorm with my legs crossed with sheets and sheets and sheets and sheets around me of stats and facts about dementia. And I was just sobbing. Yeah. I think because I realized that, um, you know, not only was mum suffering and I was going to lose my mum from it, but there, you know, there is a very high chance that I could have it too. And that's something that I think about, you know, every single day that I wake up and I, it's something that plays in my mind a lot, especially as I get older and I think about having my own family. Um, but yeah, it took me to, to first year uni to even have the, the, the guts to, to research the disease um, and find out, you know, more about it. But yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it's frustrating because there are just so many misconceptions about dementia and people do just assume it's an old person's disease. Unfortunately, dementia doesn't discriminate and, and people as young as 30 can, can get it. And I've seen, you know, it takes a quick Google I remember watching, I think it was on Today Tonight or 60 Minutes or something, and it was this horrific story about this 30, 32, 33-year-old something woman who had younger, or they used to call it younger onset. Now it's, like, they used to call it younger onset Alzheimer's. Now they've just added dementia, which is the broader umbrella. Right. Um, but she was like 30-something and had a, this beautiful husband and she was pregnant and she'd wake up forgetting that she was pregnant. Oh, God. And then gave birth and would wake up not knowing that was her baby. And then she died. Like, and that was the other thing I think that I was, you know, it didn't make sense to me because there were these people that were diagnosed and then died two years later. And then my mom just had this really elongated journey. Mm. Um, it was just, it's, it was just constant um, battle between like um, wanting better for her and, and, and wishing we had the option of euthanasia and, and wishing that she could be free because that wasn't any kind of a life. And then there was obviously the, you know, wanting to keep her around and, and the guilt with the other option. And yeah, it was, a, it was a lot to, to deal with for as long as we dealt with it. From the diagnosis to her eventually being put into care, into a home, how quickly did she deteriorate? And what was like, I know you've said, you've talked about like she, the, it was the disease and she, took a disliking to you during, you know, it just, it played, wreaked such havoc on her brain. What was that all like? That, um, that's a great question. Cause that period was like the worst period. Um, we had her at home for far too long. My dad, bless, bless him. You know, I understandably so he wanted to keep his wife at home for as long as possible. He thought that that was the best place for her. And he, he didn't want to admit that he couldn't handle it, but dad's not a nurse. He's got no, you know, it's dementia sufferers. They're high maintenance. They need a lot of, of, I have so much respect for carers and nurses of people with dementia because it's fucking hard work. And dad's already got three other teenage children to worry about plus his own mental health. Um, yeah, that period was really fucked up for some reason. And we can only have theories because I couldn't sit down and ask her because her brain was already not what it was. For some reason, I became public enemy number one. Um, I don't know why. At the time, I had these theories that maybe because, you know, we do, we are so similar, not just how we look, but just temperament, everything. I thought, is she, is she seeing me sort of grow up and achieve all these things? And is she, is she jealous? Yeah. Is she, you know, is she losing she's losing control of her own reality, but she's seeing me, you know, get older and bigger and 
more successful and is she struggling with that? Um, am I just an easy target because I was a lot more emotional and I would, you know, I'd bite back, I'd fight back, I'd cry. But yeah, she just suddenly, I mean, you've got to laugh because if you don't laugh, you cry, but she'd just come into my bedroom. I haven't said or done anything, hadn't even seen her that, that day. And she'd just open my door and say, you know, you're an ungrateful little bitch. You're a little, you know, you're a cow. Um, I wish I never had you. You're awful. No. You're nasty. I'm like, what, what? what? I'm like, what have I done? Like, I haven't done anything. And I think that, you know, my dad would come in immediately after she left and say, you know, pumpkin, you know, it's not her talking, you know, it's the disease, but like try telling that to a fucking teenager and that stuff sticks with you, you know, like it really does. It stays with you. And I still, I'm sure I could have handled it better at the time. I'm sure, I'm sure I could have handled it better, but you just, no one gives you a guidebook for that roadmap. No, absolutely. And you write with such heartbreaking, honestly. And I I said to you before this chat that there's many times while researching you, I was reduced to tears that I was making me emotional now. (laughs) (laughs) That I should have had some tissues. I know. I did think that. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to preempt, but already here we go. That by the time you were 19, she wasn't able to tell you that she loves you or recognize you. What does that do to a 19 year old girl? Um, I think that kind of always breaks my heart because I think, you know, you want, you watch all these movies and you watch like the notebook and stuff. And I think that, oh, by the way, if you do want to watch a film to kind of understand what this is like, still Alice. Oh, I can't. Uh, oh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't finished it. I've never been able to finish it, but that from what I've seen from that film, that is very, very close to my reality. Um, it's obviously won awards. Um, she did an amazing job at portraying someone that has early onset dementia. I've gotten through, I think, the first maybe 20 minutes and I had to turn it off. But It's um, heavy. I you- sobbed uncontrollably and cried myself to sleep and I've not even gone through what you have. It's very, yeah. Yeah, I think if you're interested in sort of understanding what, what this would be like, that's a great film to start with. But um, I think that you want to have these moments where you've got this sort of last conversation or these pieces of wisdom or, you know, this beautiful moment where you gave your mum a hug and said, I love you. And she said, I love you back. I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. Um, I don't know what she said to me last. I don't know the last thing she said to me. I can't remember the last time she said, I love you. I can't remember the last time she, she recognized me, but it progressed so quickly that um, I ended up going to uni in Bathurst. I armed an art about that for so long because I felt so guilty about moving three hours away from home when mum was so sick. But my dad was the one that convinced me to, to accept the offer in the end. He said, you know, your mum would be so angry with you if you turn this down. She would be so angry with you if you halted your life, you know, because of her. It was the number one university I wanted to get into. It was my number one preference. And she's, he just said she'd be so, she'd be fuming with you if you didn't take this opportunity. Yeah. But I was coming home. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I think it's what you said to me before off air that it's like I think anyone can identify with this but once you've got yeah when you've got a child I just can't imagine like going through it (laughs) I'll keep talking and you can collect yourself please maybe maybe Um, you should conduct this interview (laughs) with yourself (laughs) um yeah, it wasn't. Um, what, what was the quote? What were we saying? Oh, um, you went to Bathurst and your dad said, Oh, you yeah, be so, so angry if you didn't. Yeah, so I was coming home every weekend to spend time with my family, my mum, obviously, more, more specifically. And I remember leaving, I'd come back on the weekends, and I, would, I remember leaving one weekend and, you know, giving her a hug. And she kind of, I mean, 
I don't know if she recognized me, but she, you know, her eyes would light up when I sort of said hi to her, giving her a hug and saying, I love you. She, she was already nonverbal. No, she wasn't. She was verbal still. She was kind of muttery and loopy and a bit batshit crazy. And then I came back the following weekend and she'd become nonverbal. Like it just happened like that. Okay. It, it blows my mind to, to just how, why, like, did you just wake up one day and suddenly forget how to speak? Like, it's just, it's bizarre. Um, so yeah, I don't remember the last time she spoke to me and I don't remember what she said and I don't remember her. I can't even, she got sick so young that I can't even remember what her voice sounds like. And luckily my parents um, have a lot of home, home videos that my brother was smart enough to get transferred onto DVDs and then onto a USB recently. Um, and I watch these clips and I see her speak and I just... I just don't remember. I don't remember what she sounds like. I remember once I hear her, but if I try now to think about her voice in my head, I just can't hear it. You've said during this time too, that then you kind of stepped up and it was assumed you, you took this mother role for your brothers. You took that I on mean, and with what you're dealing with, but then you want, needed to carry on. You needed to carry on with your life. You had to move away and do uni. Like you had a life to live as well. What was that like with all of that going on at that time? Yeah, it was, it was, it was really, really hard. I think that something I've said before that really rings true to me and it's something that I've only realized in the last couple of years, but Yes, I lost mom at 15, but in many, many ways, I also lost dad because dad became mom's carer and mom was dad's priority. So I kind of didn't really, I felt like I didn't really have parents anymore. And I really grew up very fast, almost overnight. And being the eldest, being the only daughter, I inherently felt this, I, I tried and I wanted to be there for my brothers. I wanted to be like this but they're very different to me that they don't share how they're feeling. They're not as open and emotional as me. And it was really hard to connect with them. I, you know, I'd often try and see how they're doing and check in on them, but they didn't want to talk. And I just, I just did what I could to help dad out. I became dad's equal, which was a very interesting dynamic change that I was not prepared for. Very tough for a teenager or a young adult too, to assume a role like that. Yeah, it was, it was fucked. I didn't want to know, you know, I'd come home by this point I'd graduated, obviously. Um, sorry, I graduated from high school, was still at university and I'd come home and I just want, I don't know. I just wanted a hug from my dad. I wanted dad to ask me how uni was. I wanted him to say, how's uni, how's school going? But instead I'd arrive and it would, I would just be bombarded with horrible news and updates about mom and dad would be drunk and dad would start crying and, you know, and I just had to deal with that instead. So, so helpless. Like what you, you can't do anything about any of no, that either. And unfortunately, unfortunately, and he, I know he has regrets about it and that breaks my heart in a different way, but dad, you know, he's 74. So he's quite old school in his ways. He grew up in a different time to us, you know, never believed in therapy. Didn't think it was necessary. Um, you know, couldn't understand. Get on. You just get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't understand how someone who didn't know us could possibly, you know, why would I tell my problems to some, to some stranger? My, they have that idea too. What can talking it out do? That doesn't actually help my situation talking about this. I just need to do it. 
I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's totally a generational thing. And I know that a lot of people, a lot of our parents are the same. So, you know, whilst there were people, I think, that were trying to say, hey, you know, I mean, he wouldn't even accept the help from a respite nurse for Mm -hmm. him. You know, there were options that someone could come and watch mum for a day or two during the week and dad could go and do whatever he wanted to do, even if that was having a drink and a slap at the pokies. Like, he wouldn't even accept that. So, you know, we should have all been in therapy from a very young age and we weren't. Um, But I think that, uh, you know, that just made it all the much harder that, I didn't have, Facebook wasn't around back then. Mm. I didn't know you could just, you know, there weren't any support groups. Mm. Um, I didn't, I just felt like I was the only person in the world that was dealing with it. And that's something that at the moment, you know, these days it breaks my heart every time I talk about my mum because I have so many people DM me saying I'm going through this at the moment or I went through this too and they all feel all alone as well and I just think fuck if you guys knew how many other people were messaging me you'd all realize that you're not alone in this and I think unfortunately as the stats get worse and you know dementia is now the leading cause of death for females in Australia it's second leading cause of death for Australians those are some fucking terrifying stats what did you hear How that? Is like, that even and no one's doing like, no one's nothing's no, happening. No one, yeah. no one gives a fuck. I'm like, did you guys do, like the second leading cause of death for Australians? Like, th- sorry, sorry, what? yeah, and no one gives a fuck. Like, it it just it blows my mind and it makes me angry. But I think that as these stats get worse and as the baby boomers get older, so what, what's happening now, which breaks my heart, is that friends of mine are messaging me with concerns about their mum or their dad. You know, they're saying, look, I'm kind of, you know, this has happened. They're a bit, that you know, they're kind of, suddenly they're very cranky all the time. They're mm. short-tempered. Mum's um, been repeating the same stories or dad's been losing. And I just think. That's really tough Im- for you to hear. That's Immediately, really- immediately it sounds familiar to me. Immediately I, I recognise it and I'm like, yep, yep, that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. And I just think, oh, I just the last thing I want is for anyone else to go through what we went through. Like if I could save everybody from that, I would. And sort of have friends and family message me with what I'm pretty sure is their loved one showing early signs of it. I just, I just, it just breaks me because I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I just think about like, I kind of get this vision in my head of like, like, like if you were opening a DVD and you've got like the scene selection part, I get this like scene selection of what they're facing, what's coming up yeah. for them. And I just, it's just horrific. You know what's ahead. Oh, totally. The way you describe that makes so much sense. But And I just think, fuck, you, what you're in for is just, I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. You, you know, that being said, you do do so much work for Dementia Australia and you are an, you, you spread, you try and do everything you can to raise awareness and you talk about it so publicly on your Instagram and on your social media channels. Is this, I guess, some small way that you can give back and try and, I guess, go back to the girl that you once were and to the, the people that are going through it right now and let them know that, you know, there are other people experiencing it and you're not alone. Absolutely. I think I'm speaking at the International Dementia Conference um, next Tuesday. It was supposed to be a big conference in person in Sydney and I was going to fly out there and speak on stage, but obviously it's now all via Zoom because of the world we're living in. Um, I think that, you know, I really struggle sometimes with my job as an influencer. That's no secret. I've spoken about that before. I think that as someone who has a brain and has a lot of drive, 
I, I was kind of, I didn't ever set out to become an influencer. It was kind of thrusted upon me after big brother. That was still such early days when, you know, I went in and I I had a private account with like a hundred friends and I came out with like a gazillion trillion friends and, and, and I was kind of one of the first kind of influencers. Definitely. For a better word. Yeah. But I never wanted, I never wanted that. I never asked for it. I never tried for that. Whereas so now with that, reality shows, sorry to interrupt, people go on knowing that's coming afterwards. You didn't yeah. go on knowing that would be coming no, afterwards. I think that, and that's what I think is kind of sad these days about reality TV is that it's, re- it's near impossible to find contestants who are there for genuine reasons mm. because a lot of them think, okay, you know what? At the very least, I'll come out with a following and I can make some bucks of teeth whitening stuff. Whereas we just went in there, you know, hoping for a different experience. Um, But I think something that sort of let me sleep at night and something that's allowed me to appreciate and continue and respect influencing and the stuff I do with my Instagram is that I've I've thought, okay, cool. I have this platform. I want to use it for good instead of evil. Yes, obviously I make money off it and that's my bread and butter and that's how I pay my rent. And I'm so appreciative that people even still care about the products that I'm using or the clothes that I'm wearing. I'm so appreciative of that. But I also want to use that platform to talk about issues that matter to me. Mm. And that's why, you know, I talk about anxiety. That's why I talk about mental health in general or even just stuff like, you know, being lonely sometimes and, you know, being single and being lonely and or being concerned about fertility at 30, nearly 33 years old. Um, I definitely think it's important to use my platform to talk about dementia. I want to give dementia a more relevant face. I think that, you know, Ida Buttrose does so much amazing work for dementia Australia. She's been like the face and the spokesperson on it for years and years and years. But I feel like people mm. our age can't relate to Ida Buttrose. They see that like and it confirms that it's an older person's yeah. thing. So true. She's a legend. She's literally a living legend, especially if you're in the journalism industry. But she's just not relatable. Mm. Uh, you know, I think it's great that Dementia Australia have got um, the Veronica's on board, their mom unfortunately suffers from a rare form of dementia as well, Louis oh, Body. I didn't know um, yeah, yeah. So the Veronicas, and we're actually now Instagram friends, no biggie. <laughs> um, but it's awful. It, again, breaks my heart watching them go through this at the moment with their mom. And there's also Takaya, who mm. is a actor on Neighbours, who I think you've spoken to. He's been on this body um, too. Yeah. Yeah. So he is also a ambassador for Dementia Australia. His mum also unfortunately has early onset. So, you know, there are a few sort of contemporary faces, but it's just, it's just not enough. Mm. And if me sharing my pain or my trauma or my story on my Instagram, as you said, you know, it makes one less younger person who's either, you know, dealing with it as a carer, feel less alone, then fuck, that's, it's that's all amazing. It. Yeah. Well, yeah. worth going on Big Brother and worth getting all that. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say that, you know, it's not been, it's not been an easy ride. There was, the tr- there was trolls, you know, it's still, yeah. it's not easy sharing so much of yourself with people. Every single time I record an episode of my podcast, too much, Tully. Um, <laughs> in, in the show notes. <laughs> plug, plug there. Um, you know, every single time I do that, I wake up on day of it dropping and I feel anxious because I'm like, yeah. oh God, I've just, I've just shared another piece of myself with, with everybody. But it's so worth it if, yeah, if I said, if only one person feels less alone in, in their journey with dementia, um, whoever it be in their family that has it, then I'm happy to keep putting myself on the line, yeah. so to speak. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. I popped a link to Tully's Instagram in the show notes and a link to Dementia Australia if you need support. As I said in the intro, I've split this chat up into two parts, so part two will be released next Monday. As always, you can connect with me at Elizabeth O'Neill in the meantime. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you can take a second to leave a review, hit five stars and subscribe, and perhaps even share this chat on your social media. It'll help the podcast grow, and hopefully this breed of positive media will reach even more people. Until next week, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.